This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to another edition of the Sports Startup Digital Debate Competition, brought to you by Pitch Madness and in partnership with the Sports Biz Group. My name's Tyler Kelly, founder of Pitch Madness. We're really excited to bring you two Elite Eight debates as we head into the business side of this tournament. Before we get underway, another big shout out to the team, our studio editor, Nadal Harvey, and Nick Hayden, founder of the Sports Biz Group. Lastly, the whole reason we put on these tournaments is to support the founders competing in them and trying to connect them to resources and investors that can get their companies to the next level. If you're interested in connecting with any of these founders, please reach out to us on our website at pitchmanis.com or any of our social handles, and we'll look to get you connected to those founders. Additionally, we have a pledge it campaign where we're trying to raise $10,000 for the CDP COVID-19 relief fund going to frontline workers in the healthcare industry. Any way that you can support, Please either donate or share this content using the hashtag debate for COVID. Thank you again for your support. And let's get to introducing our founders. This founder believes robotics is going to be mainstream and as big as the smartphone market much sooner than people think because of gaming. Make some noise for Michael Isakov and RoboDuels. Hey guys, my name is Michael Isakov. I'm the founder and CEO of RoboDuels. RoboDuels is a real life video gaming platform. That's right. We take real robots, real drones, and we let people all across the world connect to them and control them in real time. First person view, third person view, we support unlimited cameras, it's phenomenal. The best part is we've integrated a skill-based betting solution directly into our platform. We're building some amazing tech in robotics and in the process, we're revolutionizing esports. The best way to experience RoboDuels is by going on roboduels.com. Thank you so much for your consideration and we'll see you at the debate. This founder believes video games will be the primary tool used in education and recruiting within the next 15 to 20 years. Give it up for Aaron Fletcher and Repeat. Hey guys, I'm Aaron Fletcher, the founder and CEO of Repeat. I've been a part of esports for over 15 years, building technology, organizing large life-scale events, and was a professional gamer achieving top five in the world in multiple titles. Repeat's one of the largest esports tournament platforms in the world, where we've hosted more than 19,000 tournaments and 30 million games to date. 
Our tournaments are automated, have five times the engagement and 90% fewer disputes than competitors. Also, we're the only platform that can scale to more than 1 million competitors in a single tournament. Some of the brands we've helped along the way include Western Digital, Uber, Gillette, and for our Fortnite launch in a few weeks, we're working with the US Army. If you're a brand that wants to target gamers in a positive way, I'd love to chat, so please feel free to reach out. Thanks. Thank you, founders, for those introductions. Let's kick it over to our head referee, Nick. Welcome, everybody. We are in the Elite Eight for the Sports Startup Digital Debate Competition, and now we're in the esports and gaming round to find who is the best esports and gaming companies. So we have two amazing founders. Let's get ready to debate. To start things off, we're going to flip it off with a coin toss. All right, so Aaron, would you like heads or tails? I'll go with heads. <laughs> it is tails. So, Michael, would you like to receive the question or would you like to defer? Um, I'd like to defer. Defer. Aaron, so you're going to be the first one to answer the response. You'll have 45 seconds to answer uninterrupted. Michael, you'll have 45 seconds to answer uninterrupted. And then you guys can go back and forth. So, if we could set up a 10-minute shot clock, that would be great. Good luck, founders. And here's the first question. Which aspect of diversity do you feel is most responsible for increasing company performance? So diversity is an interesting question because there's a lot of different types of diversity. And I think to answer the, correct, the, 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 the question kind of directly, the diversity that I think that helps productivity is socioeconomic diversity. So if you've got someone there that has a, um, that comes from a poorer background or comes from a background like that, they're generally gonna be much hungrier than someone there that's coming from a background that has been coddled their life, that has, has lots of money. They're not driven, they don't have these goals as much for, for that economic basically being able to gain money go up the ladder, those sort of things. And you see it a lot throughout history there with um, when someone there is very rich and very affluent and their kids, they never do as good as their parents and it kind of steps down. There are other cases where that does happen, but it, it's, it's a normally not a normal one. There are other diversities there, like obviously diversifying by um, gender, diversifying by all of these other ones that I think they definitely help, but they're more for building a product. They give you different opinions. They give you different ways to do things. And I think they're very valuable if you're purely going for how do you how do you make this push into this market? Also, cultural diversification is another one that I think is valuable because if you're four white guys trying to go target the Indian market, you're probably not gonna do very well because you don't know how to culturally fit your product for that market. So I think that does help. So it really just depends. But in terms of for productivity, I think socioeconomic is probably the big one there. Yeah, so I'd have to disagree with that. Um, from my experiences, uh, the diversity that you really look for to build and optimize the performance of a company is really a diversity of skill sets. So when you're building a company, it's very important that you have unification amongst the entire team and the entire organization. There's a sole vision, there's a sole plan that everyone has to focus on relentlessly. And the culture has to have certain constraints. Even if you look at some of the most inclusive companies in the world, they have limits and barriers on the type of people they accept into their companies, like Facebook and Google. Um, so you kind of have to set those boundaries and uh, kind of converge into the company being really, really good at doing one thing. 
So one of the most important things in like incorporating diversity into the company is sure you want a diversity of ideas within the creative space, but in terms of the space of uh, you know where the company is going, you want to have unification there. So you want to hire people with a diversity of backgrounds and a diversity of skill sets. If you look at some of the top performing teams and organizations in the world, like NASA or Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, you'll see that you know these these organizations they they're like ant colonies. Um, everybody has a specific role, but you know obviously they're way more creative. They have way more freedom, but they have this diversity of skill sets, this international diversity as well, and that's kind of what we try to incorporate at RoboDuels. You know we have an inter international di like diverse team of people with various skill sets. So, you know, it's kind of like the Apple model where you have people with certain skills focus solely on one aspect of the product. And through that diversity, you kind of add to this whole vision that you're all striving towards. So if I were to say, what is the most important part of diversity? It's really backgrounds and skill sets. That's what builds great teams, great products and great companies. Look, I think I think skill sets is obviously definitely very important, but the skill sets you should be hiring the person with the skill set for the job. That's a given. That shouldn't be something that you need to diversify. If you've got someone there that's an engineer and, and you need to diversify the skill set to hire someone there that's a, a caterer, you've you've screwed up somewhere. Like that's already a screw up. You need a like diversification in terms of skill sets is not something you diversify. You focus. There's a reason college degrees there are really focused. They, they, they have them in, in certain skews. You don't just do computer science, you do computer science in a certain field. There is a reason they're really skewed and you hire people for that. I agree diversity culturally, like we have, we have staff in Egypt, we have staff in Serbia, we have staff in Brazil, we have staff in Australia, staff in the US. And that cultural diversification, but the reason we've hired people in those countries is because they have an esports background. It's hard for us to find. They have a gaming background. Also seems to be very hard to find someone that is um, engineering that also plays video games. For whatever reason, there's a big disconnect there. And that's what we've tried to actually do. And we've had to do that, diversify those to get those skill sets correct. But I think if you want someone there in a sales team to, to boost that and boost that productivity and boost those sort of things, I think you need to find someone that's hungry. And you don't find, always find someone by, that's hungry that, that fits basically by diversifying those skill you know, sets. Even in that case, you know, you're finding people with a certain model who fit a certain model. Uh, you know, they, they, they do X and they also play esports. There are a lot of teams that fall apart because of, you know, systematic errors within an organization as it scales. And, you know, having like the best teams, you hire the best people and you really want to focus on getting, you know, that specific skew that you need the most. It's being competed over uh, by a lot of different companies. And basically your hyper-focus needs to be to acquire those people. Uh, so, you know, some of the best engineers, salespeople all around the world, they're distributed and they're highly competed after. So, and they're highly diverse as well within their, you know. And, and that's up to the founder. That's your job to sell them. So your job is to sell them on your vision, your company, what you're building. That's just, that's, that's a repercussion of what's already happening. So you, your job is to purely go out there and find those best people, find those things and actually do that. But I think for me- Together, a diverse team together that can attack the problem in hand. You know, sure you can get like, you know, any engineer off the street to, to build a website, but if you really want to stand out and, you know, have a, like a market share that's significant and be relevant, you want to get the top engineers. And 
you know, that's a crazy group of people, you know, people at the top of their, you know, skill set, they are sometimes borderline insane. And you have to, it's like a big job to get them all in. But if you have that capability to build that dream team, where you have the Jordan, where you have, you know, the, the Pippin, and you can bring them all together in the Rodman, you can basically build an A team that's going to dominate and take over and basically dominate like all the other competition, attack all the different markets that you want to attack and really take your company to the next level. Yeah, but you've, you've also got to watch out because if you're just going for the A team people, you're going you're gonna to have a lot of issues. So if you're just going for the A team and everything like that, you have alpha issues within the company, you have all these things like that, and it all falls apart once everyone tries to direct the message. There's so many companies there where I've seen where they've got, we've got co-CEOs and it becomes a problem. You can't let that happen. That's why I said that you don't want this huge diversity of like all of these different ideas for, because your customers are going to have ideas of how your company should do things. Your employees are going to have ideas, but you have to relentlessly attack the vision and define the vision constantly. Like that's what all, all Steve Jobs did was like define the vision, define the vision, define the vision and seek out the best people. And he was one of the most successful founders and CEOs of like the last hundred years. So he like, you know, that is the model that I'm taking for, you know, my pitch about, you know, how diversity can just be performance. So I just looked at the most performant companies out there and, um, you know, and the most performing organizations that actually, you know, change the world. And that's literally the formula. That they follow. That's a nice formula to have if you're Apple, but being a startup, you can't follow that formula exactly. You need to, you need to figure out in terms of to find the diamonds in the rough. That's what you're going for. You don't have 50 million to go find this person for a million. You need to find the diamonds in the rough and to find someone that is productive. It, it comes from, for me, it looks like if you want to hire someone there that's been a barista since they were 12 or 14 or whatever it is, they've done stuff like that, but they have a degree in computer science. They're humbled. They're hungry. They want to do this. And it, it leads to big different well, things. Like you're, you're, you're talking about somebody who's humble, who's like, who's poor, like who has that hunger, right? Who's like, has the desire and the ambition to, to, to move forward. And I disagree that, you know, rich people, like I, I don't come from a great socioeconomic background by any means, but you know, there are people who are successful and the top in their field and hungry, and they came from perfectly fine backgrounds. Um, it's not like white or black like that. Uh, but yeah, you know, you're describing kind of a like a, a kind of a uniform in a sense. And what I'm saying is just like you want the pe you want the best people, and those people are diverse, and they bring a diverse uh, set of skills to your company and values to your company, and they come from diverse backgrounds, and that's who you want to target if you want to really be successful. Because, but it's up to you to decide that, right? So I, I agree, it isn't black and white. As an early stage startup, you you don't you're not even concerned about diversity. You're concerned about growth. Yeah. About user acquisition, about getting investment. You're, you're worried about a lot of different things as an early stage startup. So I think this question in particular is for companies that are like mid-range, maybe raising seed money and, and, and are doing like a lot of hiring. Um, but, you know, at an early stage company, the complete the conversation is completely different. Every single person, you know, there's five people on a team and every person is 20% of the company in terms of output. So, you know, that, that conversation is completely different because, uh, you know, like, all right, gentlemen, this is a great recap right. on to the next question. So what do you do if you start gameplay testing during alpha and your customers are clearly not liking something you invested a third of your resources in? What do you do in that situation? And Michael, that would start with you. Oh yeah. So, uh, if you invest 
30% of your resources <laughs> in something, right? Uh, basically, you want to, and people don't like it, you have to stop doing it. Um, and you have to take, you know, cut your losses and start building what people are actually responding to and want because your primary focus as the founder is to increase, is to increase growth. So what can you do after the fact? You can take that, like that thing that you built. Hopefully if it's something technical, you can kind of recycle it and use it later on uh, in another component, or you can like kind of repurpose it. Um, and you know, for example, when YouTube first hey, started- Michael, we're gonna cut you there. We'll be let um, Aaron go with his 45 seconds now. Yeah, look, I, I agree with, with certain things. If you've built this and you've got one third of your budget in it and you've got to that point, you as a founder have already screwed up. You, you either need to pivot or you need to figure out what's going on there and talk to your user base. You should have already talked to them. I think um, one of the biggest things is it only costs you a dollar to figure out whether you've got market fit. You draw some stuff on a piece of paper and go talk to them. But, but it is exactly that. What do you do after the fact? And I think after the fact, you really need to then talk to the audience. You need to, you need to figure out what were the actual problems because sometimes those problems could be small and they can be fixable within what you have. And I think if you can salvage what you can, there's graphic assets, there's all these sort of things. If the gameplay needs to change, it's easy to do. If the business model needs to change a little bit, it's relatively easy to do because you're still at one third of the company. You, you probably haven't even cooked in half of that stuff. So I think it's, it all comes down to conversations you have with your audience, your customers, with everything like that, and you pivot towards what they want. And then also, don't just stick to that one opinion of that, that 100 users that said that. Go talk to more, go spend $500, go, go spend five bucks to every single person. We'll give you an Amazon voucher for a real opinion. We'll do this, we'll do that. And try to diversify that, that field of people you're talking to, because yes, they may not be your target audience. And if you're building Candy Crush and that audience you have there is like some, some 18 year old guys, then you need to figure out and say, all right, it may actually be our product. It may actually fit for another market. But I think it's, you don't want to waste too much time doing that. So those conversations need to happen very quickly. Anything to add to that, Michael? Uh, no, I mean, that's pretty, pretty much straightforward. You, you, you know, after the fact, there's not much really you can do other than pivot and learn from that and just change and make sure it doesn't happen again. So I'm pretty much on board with that. Great, all right, so we'll move on to the third question here. The gaming community is known for being a vocal and territorial group. When they see something they don't like, they oftentimes band together to influence outcomes. Knowing that you'll have to engage a more mainstream audience to scale, how do you manage possibly alienating your core audience and entertaining sellout status and entering sellout status? Um, okay, so so sellout status in gaming means one or two things. There's, it's actually really just a business model. So there's a thing called pay to win, where the more money you put into the thing, the more you win. And then the other one is is the free to play model. That's basically it's uh, it, it's free to play friendly. So there's these two different models, and I think the way that sellout status really works is. It, it, in, in gaming, it's not really a really thing. If you're an influencer, I think it is a thing because you're a person. But as a company, sellout status, all that means is that you're driving revenue upfront first and getting a pay-to-win game versus a free-to-play game that is more or less sellout status like League of Legends. You're instead driving this user base and you're finding these, these, these points there to make money off that user base through skins, through things that don't affect the gameplay to hit you sellout status. So they're, they're both very profitable. You've got companies like Machine Zone, Plarium, come to us that companies people probably don't even know who they are but they're earning billions of dollars two to three billion dollars a year doing this sellout model this pay to win model and what they do is they reskin the game and they have massive power game we'll, we'll cut you off right there Michael you got your 45 seconds yeah so um, you know I kind of 
you know, this, this really applies to games that change over time, that have an audience and then lose their audience or try to gain a new audience. So it, the best examples, it really comes down to authenticity. And the example I'll give is Halo versus Counter-Strike. Halo decided that, you know, oh, uh, they used to be one of the top esports in the world, and then they decided to add in, uh, basically copy-paste from Call of Duty, and they hired a bunch of people who were not, they had no skin in the game, they were just some consultants, and the game is like almost dead now. However, Counter-Strike has made no functional changes to their game, they remain authentic, even despite the whole ups and downs in mobile, and VR, in PUBG, and all the innovations in FPS, they just kept the game the same and it still has a million concurrent users. So it really comes down to remaining authentic and you have to do that at all costs and just take take the waves as they come. Your game will grow if you continue to improve it and um, you know stay true to what got you to the table in the first place. Look, I think Halo is actually a horrible example to use. And the reason I say that is, is Halo, the reason it kind of failed is, well, not because the, the, the gameplay changed or any of those sort of things so much. It's actually because it's locked into one console too. So it's on Xbox, it was on Xbox only. Yes, that is changing now. And if you have a look at the downloads, the number one game on Steam was Halo for when they, they, they released the Master Chief section. It was one of the top games. You've got Halo, the new one coming out. Xbox have actually done that better. It has no players. It has less than 10,000 players. It is, Counter-Strike is, most majority of people play Counter-Strike, play on the PC. Yeah, they released some Xbox games, but that was not, like, it's nowhere near the level. It's still... They do now, but it's because the game got abandoned to a degree. It's now just IP. And if you have a look at what's happening in the next nine months, that's going to change. And this model changes for two different types of games. That is staying true. They're not going to add in power-ups or any other features. A huge, like, the core audience of Halo just died after they tried to copy... But they're also very different games. So Halo and Counter-Strike, Counter-Strike is a living game. It's a game that sits there and keeps going. They keep adding patches, they keep doing this. Halo is a year by year or every three years. And I think if Halo adopted the model that Call of Duty did, they would be much more successful. So I think if they actually adopted, they didn't. They didn't do yearly releases. Did they bring out a new Halo every single year? And that's what fuels Call of Duty. That's the problem. And it, it, it's- oh, No, at the fundamental core, they stopped being the game. Like when you start a game, when you create a game, you're creating a piece of content and you're hooking people on. That innovation, that idea, that spark, once it's lost, once it's bastardized, you're gonna lose your audience. And it's always a bad long-term decision. They, they haven't lost it because when the sales go up for Steam, they went up there and it was the number one sold game. They sold millions of copies of the new Halo that came out. And- Halo is the best game ever. And you know, like do, do that because I can guarantee you in 10 years, this new game Valorant that just came out, first person shooter, um, I guarantee you in 10 years, uh, Valorant will not be relevant, Counter-Strike will still be relevant. I think League of Legends have the number one example of a game with staying power with League of Legends. They've been able to build that, they've built the content engine. The difference is, is you've got Fortnite there and the reason those games are so sticky is because they've stuck true to their free-to-play model and they built this content engine that changes every single week. You see Fortnite and the way they stay authentic and everything like that, they've hit 100% sellout status. They have Marvel dropping in the game, they've got all this crap happening in the game that is this, but they're, they're leveraging that in a positive way. They're like, hey guys, we're giving you this, which is amazing. So they found a way to be able to negate that by doing that, but it but it is effectively hitting it. And that's, that's what I'm saying is you can't do both. So if you have a free to play model and a pay to win model and people try to do both together, you lose, you're, you're over. If you stay say and do your free to play model and you do it right, it will stay forever. The problem is, is Halo is a retail game. Counter-Strike is a free game. 
you you have two different models you're trying to pit against each other and i don't think it works the reason the game counter-strike is not a free game the latest versions of counter-strike it's, it's also a retail game no cs csgo is free so csgo is free so if you want to download it CS and all that, that other stuff that, that you you buy on top of that so. if i want to play competitively in csgo i download it for free it costs me nothing i can sit there and i can play competitively i can do everything i want dlc is how they monetize that and how they keep the game alive because they drive that content engine so it's what they call a content wheel and they're very different kind I'll of I'll bring games. it back to like if you want your like whatever model business model you use to build your game the most important thing is remaining authentic to what got you to the table um and maintaining that core audience and building upon that foundation not trying to go laterally you have to continue vertically building upon it building upon it as the founders as the creators would otherwise you're just absolutely going to lose that audience and you're going to enter into sellout status you're going to have some short-term benefits but in the end it's never a good long-term strategy but you see that happening with the games on mobile so they enter sellout status within two weeks but they're earning billions of dollars every single year so you take machine machine zone who do game of war and uh, mobile strike they're completely sellout games but they built their business model to allow them to do that so what they do is what they what they do to be able to do this they leverage this curve so within two weeks your curve gets so high in power level that you have to basically pay to keep progressing and they don't mind if you leave because what they do is they create these new servers every single day a new server is created with a new pool of people that join that are all fighting against this power ban where everyone thinks they're unique they build a model that works around the seller you've got plarium with raid shadow legends do the same thing ncsoft with lineage you've got supercell one of the biggest ones you'll probably actually know which is boom beach clash royale and clash of clans which are all sellout models you take hearthstone hearthstone is the same thing it's based around it's a pay to win game that is purely around you have to buy the cards to but you know like it. looking back at the question i mean the the you know i i actually agree with actually like a lot of those points that you you say you know my focus is a bit more on esports but what i could say is that you know if you look at the the gaming community um typically those communities are tied to games uh so you have fortnite has a massive community now the community backlash is really you know what's the concern and you know all i'm saying is that listen if you try to be inauthentic you have no skin in the game when you're making decisions about you know from the business standpoint or the creative standpoint you're gonna basically have problems with that audience yeah. um and that audience is actually critical so you know within the context of that you should never ever uh, you know, try to enter into any sort I think, of I think we're, we're arguing the same thing, but it's more a matter of you're saying stay true and authentic to not entering sellout ever. I'm saying if you're going to go sellout status, do it properly. And I'm saying if you want to go to the free-to-play status and not sell out, you need to do that properly. But they both work as a business effectively, and, but you can't try to do both. If you try to do both and you, you're like, hey, we can, we can also remain authentic while being a sellout, I'm sorry, that's not going to happen. So you need to pick one, and as a business, they both work. But I think you've just got to you've got to you've got to pick and choose one, and you drive that home all the way. There's a reason League of Legends still exists, CS:GO still exists. There's a reason these games still exist, and it's because their software is a they're, they're a game as a service, and they build it on that. They're free to play, and they earn the money through skins that aren't that don't affect the gameplay. All they do is they make you look prettier, and then they leverage that through the competitive engine, where they're like, if if some guy stomps my face and then he teabags me and he's wearing a jester costume, I'm like, shit, I want to buy that. So the next time I teabag someone, I'm wearing a jester costume. So they build a model that works for that, and I think that's that's how they've done it. And you got to keep that content flowing once you stop. Right, you know, I, I would say that you, you know that the the, the the fact that it's free is a big factor, 
but I think even a bigger factor is just fundamentally when the game was first released. If you look back into the 1990s, well, the game had no skins, but it still blew up. It had tremendous growth, and that growth was sparked by not any skins, not graphics. The graphics sucked, but it still was one of the top FPS games. It, it was successful because of the mechanics and because of the structure and the design of the game. If you it was the first that, one there, that's why. It was that, the that, first that, one. That's, that's, that's the reason that why. Excuse me, that built the community. And that community made all of these business models and all this stuff possible. Uh, all these skins. The skins were imported from other games. Like it's not it's not a very novel idea. But the most important thing when you're innovating in gaming is is growth and is securing some level of growth and then capitalizing off of that. And really, that comes down to being true to what got you the growth in the first place. And if you try to try to like copy your competitors or be something that you weren't in the beginning, it's going to be very, very bad in the long term. And that's why Counter-Strike has remained successful for the past 20 years, period. But it remained successful through evolutions, right? So Counter-Strike, you had 1.3, you had 1.5, and it evolved into a brand new game. And then, then it started dying off, and then Call of Duty started taking over. Like, I was a competitive, so I played professionally, I played Counter-Strike. And so I saw this, I stopped it when exactly the same thing happened, sellout status happened when CSGO and 1.6 Source kind of, when Source kind of, it rolled out to that. But then they did a very good job of pushing on that and not stopping. They, they bought in skins, they did all these sort of things that kept that content engine going and that, that's what helped it. So it was dying and it was, so World of Warcraft took over, which was a content engine. You saw um, all the other games kind of start taking it over. Dota, Dota actually killed CS 1.6. So Dota, when that came out, most of everyone that I played competitively with went to Dota. And that was the issue there. And I think they weren't remaining authentic. And yeah, I agree. They, 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 oh, sorry, they were remaining authentic, but the problem was that the game didn't have anything to keep you coming back. Yes, the gameplay was amazing, but they needed to evolve. And that's where they went to Source and they evolved again. They updated the graphics. They did these amazing things with that. And then what they did is to, they, they, that user base started tumbling off. So they, they brought out CSGO, it's now free to play, it now has it has skins in it to keep you playing, it has objectives and these PvE goals and quests. It's completely it's completely changed from what it was then. And it went through these fails where it went like this, it failed, and it evolved and brought out a new game each time to be able to change that. But they what they did to keep it alive is they focused on one thing, which is making it free to play and keeping that content engine going. But anyway. Yeah, so at, at its core, it has remained Counter-Strike. The Counter-Strike that you play, the D-Dust map that you go on 20 years from 20 years ago and today, it plays very, very similar. There were very few functional changes. A lot of the changes that were not at the core of the business, like, I'm sorry, at the core of like the actual gameplay. It was more kind of peripheral add-on auxiliary things that you could the, add later on. As the a gameplay started. changed massively. So from 1.6, the hitboxes for your face went 60% bigger. Like they changed it massively for a casual market, which is why why people hated it at the competitive scene. There's a reason. No, no, no. They did it. They did not change, like to the extreme that other sellout companies that I would say are sellouts have changed. So they kept them. The, they didn't make any severe changes. Sixty percent change here. Ten percent change not a big deal it's still counter-strike it killed it the competitive out. scene that's that's what happened with it cs source was not competitive so the next evolution of it and it wasn't until csgo came out did no. it go back to being competitive but it was it was a very nom it was very nominal difference relative to the entire landscape that's why like they they, they tried to to go away from it and then they went back because like the original counter-strike worked 
games, like the best games last for, for, can last forever. Just look at like chess, for example. You know, I'm sure you could add like different skins and make like a whole gamified chess game. Probably wouldn't be popular now, but what I'm saying is like, essentially, if you have a good game, do not change it, remain authentic to it. And your community, even if it starts out small, will continue to grow as you develop. And there will always be ways to monetize it. We have all those models now, and that's not original. What's original about a community and about a game is the actual game itself. Um, and you have to stay true to that if you if you want to. Your game. Yeah, but you, game you can say that, and there's Arena of Valor is a game that they've remained authentic. So Arena of Valor, one of the biggest mobile games, and they've basically killed there the game. The best. So it's, there are limits. Like there are some games that will never reach a billion users. One of the reasons that like Fortnite is so popular is the the game type. That was one of the innovations in PUBG as well. They have a hundred people in a battle royale, a hundred people at once. So their concurrent users are way higher than everyone's. Their capacity for users are way higher. And that's one of the innovations they made. Now, will there be an esports game that will cover 2.2 billion people and have all have them Yeah, all but played? Fortnite's not an esports game. Fortnite they they it is a horrible spectacle. It is the no, it is not. I can hands down tell you, you talk to anyone that is competitive, they will tell you it is not a competitive game because it is not a sorry, it is not a spectator shift friendly game. It is not going to blow up as an esports because okay, you're so playing a battle royale game. YouTuber, the top YouTuber is like just look at some of the top YouTubers. Yeah, but that's not esports. That's not esports. That's content. They're two different things. So if you're talking about if you're talking about them watching them and stuff like that, you're only how many people saw the hundred million dollar tournament for for, for Fortnite? Uh, and how many people watched League of Legends, which was a lot more than that? So so you look at it from a spectator thing. They even Epic even said it failed. It is an esport. It isn't Fortnite. Is an esport. It is. It is not going to work as an esport in its current version. Because the problem with it is, just hear me out in terms of how Battle Royale works. So the problem is you drop 100 people in. The reason Counter-Strike works so much better than it is because you drop 100 people in and the first five minutes they're getting resources, they're doing crap like that and it's not entertaining. And when kills start happening, you're not following a story as a user. Instead of just jumping from kill cam to kill cam and it becomes a really big problem. Epic have said they're trying to fix the problem and now they're not, they're not really pushing. They haven't had a tournament for three months. They haven't done anything for it because they're trying to figure out. They they have cash cup, they have cash cup, but that's not an actual big thing. That's just the, that's just their weekly leaderboard. It's not actually a tournament. No one actually plays against each other. They just jump on a leaderboard and whoever gets the most kills in that time gets it. The reason Fortnite is so successful for everyone largely is the content. If I can if I can have a Deadpool skin in the game, I'm like I will go play the game purely because it's got that. It's the content they're pulling out every single every single day. Literally, they bring out new content, and that's what's driving that user base growth. Esports is the sole way that they make money, but they are an esport. They have professional players. They have professional tournaments that are sponsored. That are like you know, yeah, but so does so does everything. There's lots of ones that are little games no, that are big no, games. No, no, not everything. Not everything. Not everything has that. There are only like a, a select few top top games. Like even look at your website. You don't have every single game on there. You have the best games. So. Yeah. You know, it's basically, you know... It, it, but we're not targeting people for esports. We're targeting casual users. So we're not trying to do these large-scale tournaments. We want to bring in the 99% of casual users to start playing these games in the leaderboard styles. The we're not trying to do tournaments directly. users have the money to, to start esports, like, to, 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 like, light the match for esports. So if you're... You can't just, like, launch an esport. You have to launch a game, 
and then people have to play the game, they have to enjoy it, you build a community, you stay authentic, you keep innovating, you keep improving, you keep adding auxiliary things that are going to bring people in, and then all of a sudden now you have professional players, now you have a meta game. Now and every professional player has been quitting, all of them, for Fortnite. They've all moved over to COD because the game is not competitive. They've all moved over to other games that I'm are out there. That Fortnite is a good game or not? I'm just no, saying. No, I'm not arguing that. I'm saying from an esports scene of thing, the esports scene went like this and went down. And the only reason they're doing it is they're staying for the esports scene at all. They're just showing up for the prize pool, and Epic is fueling that. All right, gentlemen, this has yeah, been sorry. a very enthusiastic <laughs> debate here, and it's going to be a difficult decision for the judges. So what we're going to do, very unique, is we're going to ask one more question. There's not going to be any response after that. Yep. You're each going to have 45 <laughs> seconds to leave on the highest note possible there. So we're going to ask that question. You're each going to have 45 seconds to end on your message, no back and forth, and we'll make sure that the judges have ample information to make their uh, decision. So here's the last question. How do you approach a situation where your users or customers start using your platform in an unintended ways, but changing your platform would cause severe financial impact? What would you do to adapt to that? And Aaron, you'll start that question and there's no rebuttal for you, Michael. You'll leave your statement. Look, I think um, if it's gonna, so you look at Uber, Uber is a model there that currently they're actually struggling in COVID. So right now people are ordering more and they're actually not earning money because they don't earn money off that. And I think it comes down to one, if you're struggling financially, but you think you can turn that over to actually making money and you think you can grow that, Amazon is another example where they grew the market huge. They haven't earned revenue in 20 years. And if you can grow that user base and that financial dip is still growing the user base, and you think you can pivot that or you have ideas around how to monetize that later, I think it makes sense. And you raise money around those around that logic. They're backing the founder, they're backing your vision, they're backing your plan. But if it's hurting you financially and you can't ever turn it into money, don't do it. It sounds horrible, turn it off, whatever it is. But I think it comes down to making sure that you can eventually monetize that because if you're still growing the user base with that divot and that financial you know, repercussions, do it. If it makes sense through in the future, you have a way to monetize it. And Michael? Yeah, so if your users are using your product in unintended ways, that is an opportunity. Obviously, you have to balance that with the cash that you have in the bank and the resources that you have to fully commit to that. But it does tell a story that you can bring to your partners and your investors and to push that idea forward and also gives you something to mark off down the line. Um, and there's a lot of examples where, you know, these unintended uses, use cases uh, have resulted in you know, kind of billion dollar exits. Just look at YouTube, for example, it started as a dating app. So um, you have to kind of be adaptable uh, and be able to pivot uh, and keep your an open mind. And if you can, it would be better probably to launch it as a separate thing if you have the ability. But really it comes down to being adaptable because the number one thing for a company's survival and just evolutionary survival is adaptability. Great responses. So to clear that, being a startup founder, you have to have a lot of passion. You guys definitely put that on display there. For those listening, please use the hashtag debate for COVID. Let us know who you think that won, won that round. And don't forget to debate uh, to donate to our pledge campaign. So go to www.pledgeit.org backslash startup debate. Show some support for the frontline workers. And now on to the judges' decisions. And let's introduce our judges. First up, Gabby Rowe, 
president at Maestro Sports and Entertainment. Next, Hazley Huth, investor at Huddle VC. And lastly, John Dwyer, CEO of Wonder Gaming. Let's kick it over to our head referee, Nick. All right, that wraps up an amazing debate in the Elite Eight of the esports and gaming. Good thought-out debate between Aaron and Michael, and now we are on to the judges for their analysis and picks. So to kick things off, we're going to have Gabby. Can you lead it with your analysis and then followed by your pick? Sure. Um, I thought both of the founders did a really good job of, first and foremost, as an investor, what you're looking for is someone who is super passionate about what the business is. And obviously, both Aaron and Michael showed that passion. Um, you're also looking for something uh, or to invest in, in someone who's very knowledgeable about their business in general, as well as the segment of the business that they're in. And I thought that both of them uh, did a pretty tremendous job at that. Um, I did find though that um, one of them, in my opinion, more clearly was someone who understood business in general from a, a much larger perspective. And when you're investing in a business and investing primarily in the people who run those business, you wanna make sure that they have a macro view of business in general um, and really are going to be looking out for what's in the best interest of the money that we are investing. <clears throat> I thought one of the two of them did a better job at that. As far as the specific answers to the five different questions, I thought they both did, again, a very passionate job, um, although I thought one of them gave much better examples um, as to reasons why their answers were pertinent to the business. Um, the other point, which I thought was very interesting that I think that one of them did better than the other was as an investor, we are not always experts in their business. They have to be able to explain their business in a way that we're going to understand. Uh, and I thought that using some real world examples, even some examples outside of esports, really allowed me to find myself nodding my head and agreeing with one of them uh, versus the other. So I'll give you my decision and then I'll tell you which of those specific things I was talking about. I think that Michael um, is the is the winner in my mind. Um, the good points he was making about Halo, the good points he was making about chess being a game that is very, very popular. Um, the good points that he made even about, you know, Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman being members of a team that are different but find a way to work together. Very relevant with Last Dance being something that so many people are watching now. Um, the fact that YouTube used to be a dating app and then came over to the other side and obviously is very successful, I thought was really well done. Um, if I was taking little body blow check marks on this, I had Michael having six or seven really good body blows within the fight, let's call it. Uh, and I thought that, you know, Aaron had four or five, but Michael really were coming up with, I believe, things that made me believe that he understands business and was was someone I could invest in with more confidence. Um, I think he was, I think he thought bigger and broader outside of esports. I think that Aaron was more contained within esports. Um, I think Aaron was almost more of a expressing tons of gamer knowledge, whereas Michael was expressing much more business knowledge with also having the gaming experience. 
So for all of those reasons is why I think that Michael was the winner here. Thank you for that, Gabby. I appreciate the boxing reference there. So that gives Michael one vote. And now we're going to move over to Halsey for uh, his vote and analysis. Can you unmute it real quick and uh, restart? Thank you. Guys, yep. Thanks for that. Um, Gabby, I'm, I'm going to agree with you on a few points here uh, and then disagree as, as well. Um, yeah, just kind of first, first off, you know, really impressed with both founders. Uh, both people definitely understand, you know, the the topic and the space that we're digging into. Um, you know, I was I was impressed that you know not not each founder has the exact same background, but you know each were able to come to the table with you know experience and actually answer these questions. Um, at the end of it, you know, I'm I'm looking at uh, at this from the view of you know what what would Hotel VC be looking at uh, when we're looking at our our founders, um, and really what we're looking for are you know knowledgeable founders that are able to look at a space, look at their challenge and be able to figure out how do we get from, you know, point A to point B to satisfy these users, get this product to market and actually, you know, start generating some revenue. Um, so with kind of the, the questions, um, I wanted to dig into a few of the parts that I thought um, made kind of the, uh, the, the founder that I thought kind of won this round in my mind stand out. Um, so I'm just going to pick through a few of those different questions here. So it's kind of the first, the talent and the diversity side. This is this is something I think is so core to figuring out if the founder is actually going to make this work out. Yes, it would be fantastic if we all had the ability to, you know, pull together this like you know elite team of like our version of Ocean's Eleven. That would be amazing. Um, and I think if we all had perfect resources, you know, we we could do that. Um, but really, uh, when you're looking at this kind of like early stage investing, it's about, okay, do you have the ability to find the people that are going to get you from this point A to point B? And who are the actual people that, you know, it may not be the person coming from a unicorn that you're pulling, but you did find the, um, you know, Aaron, I really appreciate it when you said this, albeit I would have said it a different way, um, you know, the kind of young hustler type that can really move the needle for you. Um, it doesn't always have to be this young hustler, uh, but, you know, it are, it is those individuals that are willing to like, you know, get in into the trenches and really actually help the business, not just like take a salary. Um, so I thought kind of your perspective on that, albeit, uh, Michael, I did like, you know, your analogies with, you know, <coughs> you need to find like the it's not just like diversity of background, you know, you really need to make the people actually fit in together and work like a team. Um, yeah, so really, really interesting debate over, um, you know, what is like the right model for actually running a game or running a product. Um, I feel like uh, everyone here has some very uh, kind of hard won feelings against, you know, Fortnite and, and Epic and Riot and League of Legends. And it's fantastic that you guys can see this. Um, Aaron, I shots fired. Uh, Fortnite is not an esport. That's amazing. Um, yeah, as someone who's actually personally gone to like you know the the Fortnite championship they held in like Arthur Ashe Stadium, it's it's difficult to watch. Um, you know they 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 know that they're working on that. Um, but I do think that you know Fortnite's done a ton of amazing stuff that has helped them. You know really stay uh, up there competitive both on like the content side. Uh, and then also like the game mechanic side, you know, we, we talked about why is, you know, PUBG and this Battle Royale thing doing well. Um, <clears throat> have they sold out? To a degree, very much so. 
but you know, do they have um, a ton of happy users that are happy with that product? Yes. Um, so I, I, I think you know, on the point there, um, Aaron, as well, you, you seem to have kind of like the grasp of um, why they actually won that out. Um, and then kind of lastly, I think I'm maybe running out of time. Um, so if uh, the, the feature requests or, um, you know, you realize that, you know, what you did build for your community, um, especially with these like tribal groups, uh, one of the fun parts of them being tribal is that they do have really good feedback. And so if you do find those very hungry users that are like, look, you guys are building this. We see the vision of what you want to do. We know it's an alpha release, but this is how, you know, we think you should be getting out there. That could be great or that could be like a wish of death um it's it's great that you're able to get feedback from users but if you decide to like appease everyone you're gonna get nowhere um and especially if it's you know a critical thing like in the alpha you realize you know 30 percent of the people just hate it that's an issue you need to like go back very much rethink about what you've done and kind of start from scratch um, and if you realize kind of in that initial feedback that there are features and, you know, you do have users that are looking at it a different way and you need to pull that in, either decide to, you know, full swing, go build that or, you know, take a deeper look at what you originally built. But uh, back to kind of like uh, both Aaron and Michael, you, you hit this, you know, it only makes sense to go build that if you at that point in time can build it. And if it would actually make sense after this is launched, that you guys are actually going to start taking some revenue. So with that, um, I'll kind of overall, um, I'm kind of looking at this in the lens of who would we feel kind of most comfortable actually giving like a check to. Um, and kind of through this, uh, I really think it would be Aaron. Uh, just kind of last points, uh, very much look at, you know, who would I feel safer with if, you know, something does come up, um, you know, um, unexpected issues, you know, is this the founder that's actually going to be able to weather that storm find the people and use the resources to get there. They need to make a pivot, they get that pivot and they find the people to do it. Um, so I think if we're, if we're doing that, the, the boxing match analogy, I think, uh, you know, Aaron would be the one that's, you know, ringing that bell for this today. Thank you for that uh, analysis, Hazley. So we have a tiebreaker. So Aaron, one vote, Michael, one vote. And now, John, you are in the hot seat to decide who will go to the final four. So. Can you please provide your analysis followed by your pick? Yeah, um, I'm gonna <clears throat> I'm gonna side with Gabby on this one. I think for me it was pretty clear that Michael was uh, the type of individual and leader that I, you know, not only out of my personal checkbook but also from a fund perspective would feel more comfortable investing in. And I think that's largely built out of the pragmatism and some of the examples he used, which which Gabby already referenced, but. You know, uh, the esports industry, and I, I say this as somebody who has run, you know, global sales and partnerships for the largest publicly traded esports company in the world. You know, esports is a business that still lives inside of its own mythology as to where wins reside. You know, and uh, my favorite line is Jonah Hill in the movie Moneyball, and he says, I think Major League Baseball is an imperfect understanding of where wins reside. And I think uh, I think esports in and of itself across the board, especially at the team model, if you look at the 20, uh, the, the, the 20 Overwatch teams and the 12 Call of Duty teams, uh, uh, 
which are owned respectively across you know the world we all know that they're hemorrhaging cash right we all know that they're not exactly pleased uh with the publishers we all know that it's been a huge setback with covid-19 etc and so anybody that's going to operate in this in this ecosystem uh and kind of you know continue to quarrel with what does and does not constitute esports and make that a central theme to kind of how you look at this 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 uh, uh you know this industry i kind of feel like you're looking in the wrong space you know you got an imperfect understanding where wins come from we're in the business right now of demonstrating to the world that this is a safe place for money and you want to have an operator to again gabby to quote you is you know to somebody that has more of a macro view uh of the marketplace and there are a ton of people out there right now that really get esports and they understand gamers and i'll tell you as we all know gamers are the most discerning audience maybe on the planet and when they spot inauthenticity they call it out and it's not like they're watching it on TSN they're watching it on Twitch YouTube caffeine etc on platforms where they're able to comment and they're able to just cast aspersions on anything they want and they can bomb a brand fast um which has become such a very difficult reality for a lot of the big teams and 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 you know a lot of different brands trying to get non-endemic partners to participate because it's such a democratized opportunity for people to cast aspersions and so that's why in my opinion I really like Michael's approach because I found that he uh just kind of demonstrated more of a reasonable approach to handling some of the inadequacies that this marketplace is going to lay at all of our feet um and uh and and I think the other thing too is when you have people with that style of approach and I do apologize I know I'm not going strictly by the questions but I'm a shoot from the hip kind of fella um when you have people with that style of approach when things go wrong they're amenable to new change they're amenable to change in valuation change in approach hey look we got to lay off some staff we, you know like all of these pragmatic items that are such a central theme i don't care if you're manufacturing car parts uh textiles or you want to you run an esports business that is such a central theme in every company and i think more of that style of rigor that we that 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 entrepreneurs and operators in this space bring to bear and how they run their business day to day is going to help the esports business mature a lot quicker and it's going to help guys like myself and all the other folks that are investing in this space really make uh, uh draw bigger check sizes and uh, and sleep a little bit better at night because i know in spite of the fact that esports has spiked during uh this covid crisis which uh, is tragic but at the same time terrific for the industry um it's going to be interesting to see how that manifests itself in 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 uh the new money that's going to come to the space how guys are going to be making decisions on how to grow their business and uh so for all of that i i just got a good spidey sense um about michael versus uh the other jet Thank you for that analysis, John, and congratulations to Michael. You just got a ticket to the Final Four. Great job by Aaron for his well-thought-out debate. If you haven't already, debate to uh, donate to our pledge campaign to help support CDP's COVID-19 relief fund. Use the hashtag #DebateForCovid to stay engaged with all the content we'll be pushing out. 
Gabby, Hazley, and John, thank you for that in-depth overview about esports and investing in sports and entertainment. And now we're on to the next round. This Founder Believes online sports betting will evolve into a common and accepted household event that is as commonplace as lottery ticket purchases and just as accessible. The taboo will be replaced by gamification, pro league partnerships, and progressive technology. Give it up for Kelly Brooks and Court of Four. Hi there. My name is Kelly Brooks and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Quarter Four. Firstly, I want to thank you for being here to support COVID-19 relief efforts. I truly hope everyone around you is healthy and safe. Quarter 4 is an artificial intelligence platform that runs hundreds of models in order to predict team and athlete performance in just seconds. With voice integration, you can even get it on your Google Home. We are here and we exist to disrupt the antiquated tips and tricks industry, otherwise known as the sports betting resource industry. Traditionally, this industry has been biased and dishonest. And we are here to make that industry transparent with artificial intelligence modeling and the cleanest data available. Thank you again for tuning in today. This founder believes there's a wide margin gap ready to be exploited in the non-existent digital secondary market in sports betting. Sportsbooks cash out functions take between 10 to 90% margin off the true value of the user's bet. Give it up for Dean, Sisson, and Profit. Profit is a secondary marketplace for sports bets where users can buy and sell percentages of bets. So the problem is that sports bets, they rapidly fluctuate in value, often every second. But right now, users currently don't have a way to optimally cash out on their bets changes in value. And that's where we come in. Thank you, founders, for those introductions. Let's kick it over to our head referee, Nick. Welcome, everybody. We are in the Elite Eight for the Sports Startup Digital Debate Competition. This is the sports betting and gambling round, and we are down to some of the best founders, Kelly Brooks and Dean, to represent and debate head-to-head in this competition. So, welcome, founders. Let's get ready to debate. And to start things off, we're going to do a coin flip to decide who will kick off the first question. So, Kelly, would you like heads or tails? Tails, please. All right. It is tails. So, would you like to receive the first question, or would you like to defer? I'm going to go for it. So, I'll take I'll take the first question. Amazing. So, Kelly, you'll kick it off. You'll have 45 seconds to answer uninterrupted with your opinion, and then Dean, you'll have 45 seconds, and then from that time, you guys can go back and forth. Best of luck to you. We could put 10 minutes on the clock, and we'll kick things off with the first question. Which of these three KPIs are the most important and why? Revenue, retention, new user growth. Following up on that, which one is often overlooked? So what is the three top KPIs and which one's most important? Revenue, retention, or new user growth? Kelly, you'll start with that. Okay, um, really good question. So what I do wanna start with is that when we were talking about new user and 
user retention, uh, they're dependent, they're, they're synergistic. But with that, we know that the new user is the gateway to retained users. Uh, so that's really important to get your, your new users. But once you have users and you've retained them, we call them the gold because they've decided to stay on your platform. And with those retained users, what you can do is actually tighten up your acquisition strategy. So you can use your retained users to uh, really benefit your acquisition strategy. So through non-invasive methods, uh, you can do surveys, you can talk to the users that have stayed on the platform, figure out what they like, figure out what they don't like, and actually start to build a profile so that your marketing can actually be targeted. Um, so also with retained users, a bit more of a favorite. We all know that it costs less to retain a user than to acquire a new user. If you can increase consumer retention by 2%, uh, you can reduce operating costs by 10%. So that's really important to note for a startup. And I just want to talk about new user. It's sexy. Sure, let's, uh, that's 45 seconds, so we'll let Dean have his answer and you can carry on with okay. that. So Dean, your 45 seconds starts now. Sure. Okay. I, I don't think it's a real black and white question, honestly. I think it's very variable, dependent on what industry you're in, what type of company you operate. Kelly and I, we have B2C platforms, but if you're a B2B company, it can look way different. Um, if I had to pick one, I would, I would probably pick retention just because a little bit of what Kelly was saying, you're going to learn the most about your customers who are there. You know, Instagram, their first 90 users when they were the, uh, the platform that uh, you, know, you posted about bourbon and uh, they realized that was going nowhere. And when they asked those 90 people why they were actually on the platform, why they kept coming back, that's when they came up with Instagram. Um, so. You know, the key is you learn the most from the guys who are sticking around on your platform. You don't learn the most from the people who aren't using your platform. Um, but again, I think it's very different for a lot of different companies. And if I were to go with one answer, that would be that would be my guess. Got it. And Kelly, anything to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I do want to talk about new user. Again, that KPI. The one thing about that KPI is it's super sexy. Um, you know, sometimes we also use it as a vanity metric. We can say, wow, you know, we got our first paid user today and we onboarded 1500 users. But you know what, it's very rare to hear the champagne bottle pop when we get our first retained user. And I think that needs to be done more frequently because again, those retained users are the gold um, and they really validate that your product has stickiness and that's really important in the market. Especially, Kelly, especially when you're just new to, to whatever it is that you're doing, right? If, if you're in your first few months of operating and you have a hundred guys who are consistently going back to your platform every day, you're gonna look at those guys and say, what is bringing them back every single day? Not how am I losing these thousand people and not bringing them in, which yes, new user growth is sexy, it's great, but if they're just coming in and, and you're flushing them out and you keep churning out everyone, you don't have a platform, you don't have a company. So. I agree with you there with about retention, but again, to my previous point, it is so unique across so many different companies. For example, um, for someone like us who revolve around, uh, or I should say who make our money from the amount of betting volume that comes in, that's our main KPI, it's betting volume. And it's a product of new user growth, yes, it's a product of retention mainly, but it's also a product of who exactly we're targeting, right? So if we're just bringing in guys 
who are betting $10 a month, but we're retaining them every day, that's not great. You know, we need to find the guys who are going to make us the most money. Um, which again is the great point. So um, I guess, yeah, it seems pretty clear retention is uh, a universal scale, at least for this side of it. So let's move on to the next question. Um, How important do you think it is to focus on what your competition is doing? And if you do focus on that, how do you go about gathering that type of information? So Dean, you'll kick that one off. Sure. I I think it's it's definitely important, right? Um, I don't think it's as important when you're someone who's a small company or a startup just starting out. Um, it is important to recognize what your bigger competitors are doing just so you don't get into a battle with them that you'll ultimately lose. Um, Because again, if you're a startup, the way you're going to succeed is you have to get creative and you have to carve out a niche in the marketplace, especially someone like us in sports betting. So if I were to launch my platform as just an ordinary sports book, how am I going to beat these guys? You know? I, I spoke about it last time, you, you went on product pricing or marketing, and a startup like us, we just we can't compete with just an ordinary product that isn't differentiated at all from these guys. Um, so I think it's important to the that was, extent- uh, That was your 45 seconds right there, so we'll, we'll kick it to Kelly for her 45 seconds. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna you know, push Dean a little bit on that. I think whether you're a startup or a multinational, a competitor analysis is super important. I just talked to a VC last week and he said, you're the first startup I've talked to this week who knows their competitors. If you're not doing competitor research, I agree with a startup, you're wearing many hats so you can't spend you know, days on it every week. Uh, but you need to know your, you know, you need to do your analysis. If you don't have a competitor, either one, you, there's no market need, number two, you've not done your research or number three, you're ahead of the curve. So that's really important to determine, uh, right? So, and also competition means you figure out what your differentiators are. Top question when you're doing marketing or when you're going out for funding, what's the differentiators on your product? And the way you can do that is by researching your competitors uh, through various methods. Like I said, a multinational might have a CI team. As a startup, we hack it. Uh, and we have various methods that we do that by. Um, and I know my time's gonna run up soon, so I will close out with what how we do that really effectively. But Dean, um, I agree, we can't spend amount, the amount of time on it like a multinational can, uh, you know, during the week, but we absolutely have to keep our finger, you know, on the pulse on what our competitor is doing, because if we don't, you know, it's gonna nip us in the butt. Um, so, you know, we really have to do it through a hacking mechanism. For example, I watched your pod, I listened to your podcast the other day to figure out, you know, what you're doing with your with your product. What are your challenges? You know, how many users do you have? Uh, so, you know, through various methods, we dump our competitor analysis into our Slack channel so the rest of our team can see it. And website re- research as well through startup is really important. I can see who they're hiring. If my competitor is hiring an AI developer tomorrow, then I better, you know, figure out my AI differentiators pretty quickly because they're coming up on my tail. So I I, I absolutely. There's definitely an element to that. I completely agree with you. Um, But then there's also an element of you have to stay in your lane compared to what your competition is doing, right? So if, if if I'm going in a million different directions, I'm going to run out of resources. I'm going to burn through it. Um, Also, to that point, if you focus on what your competition is doing pretty heavily, which obviously we all should, 
then you can figure out how to lower your cost to acquire each customer. And that's, that's the name of the game in a startup. And that's how you figure out your retention and, and ultimately improve all your, your unit economics. So um, just tying back to my previous point in the previous question, that's a huge thing to look at here in order to lower your CAC. Uh, the other thing um, being a startup in this industry is our competitors can quickly become our allies. So I've talked to a number of companies right now that I thought, you know, were my direct competitors, but in talking to them, you know, we formed great partnerships because we figured out we weren't doing exactly what each other's doing. And then instead we're partnering and enhancing that user experience and contributing to each other's sales funnels. So, um, you know, just to do competitor competitor research to see, you know, who's going against you. I think competitor research can give you so many other opportunities and things that are vital to succeed as a business in this marketplace. Great. We'll move on to the next question. Do gamblers really believe that they can get an edge from stats on a website? If it's real, are they just desperate or do they really need that type of information? Or is there certain access to information that not everybody has? So Kelly, if you want to kick, kick start that question. Yeah. Uh, firstly, I think gamblers think a lot of things can affect their bets, uh, the weather, you know, their mood, the color of a jersey. Uh, but I want to tie this question back to, um, you know, the game of skill versus the game of chance. In 2016, you know, in US and the courts, fantasy sports were deemed a game of skill. And that does leaps and bounds for our industry because I also think that sports betting is right on the heels uh, with the same label. And if you do have a game of skill, it means that, you know, as a better, you can improve your skill through practice, uh, through education, through using resources. So quarter four as a company, our mandate is to help the better, you know, give them an edge of one to 10%. You know, we do that through non-biased data methods. We do it through finite data. We do it through streamlined predictions. Uh, we don't do it in a manner of desperation when it, you know, where a biased expert analyst is going to charge a thousand dollars in that gambler's moment of desperation uh, so that they can recoup all the money they lost last night. If you start looking at it as a game of skill, then and you have customers and you're onboarding them they're going to use uh, a tool such as quarter four to learn if it's a new better and they don't know what a certain prop bet are we're going to engage that user in the journey educate them provide them with statistics provide them with predictions and reasoning why we've done that in a very transparent manner there's always a game of chance uh with betting we can never predict if a shoe's going to explode or if someone's right, getting up. food poisoning We'll wrap it over there and deep toss it to Dean for his, uh, his... Yeah, I mean, of course people think they can gain an edge, but in reality, it's next to impossible to gain an edge just from, from statistics. Um, you know, when it comes down to the nuts and bolts of it, sportsbooks don't release information that would benefit their customers, right? Like, they wouldn't release the amount of public money that's available or that's bet on on each side if it were to actually benefit the public. It's all it's all facade. Um in addition to that, I wouldn't say that customers are, are desperate. It's, it's a hobby for everyone. It's why it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's, as a culture here in America, we are so statistically driven. And if I can add on to that point real quick, it's the reason why uh, Flutter and the Stars Group, who you saw just merge, they own OddsChecker, who's arguably the biggest affiliate in the industry. Um, with OddsChecker, it is a site that includes a ton of stats. It also includes different odds 
comparisons of all different sports books. So it's real. They're they're not desperate. It's a hobby for everyone. Um, and also, yeah, people think they can gain an advantage, but can they actually is a different story. Yeah, I mean, again, uh, with quarter four, we've run a number of tests and we are giving um, betters who are looking to learn and to engage with betting, we are giving them a, you know, a one to 10% advantage with our very transparent content. So we're not just a stat site, we're disruptive because we are statistics displayed in a very user-friendly manner. There's nothing hitting there. We don't have any emotional opinion because everything we're generating is through artificial intelligence and finite data points that, you know, we get from six years of back data. Uh, so I do think that betters can use new technology like quarter four to hone their skills, to learn more and to make better and smarter bets. I think educating betters on getting smarter is uh, a very tall order, but I think it's very necessary. I have a question for you, Kelly, on the, what does the one to 10% mean exactly? You give them a one to 10% advantage, just more accurate picks. Does that mean their ROI is one to 10% more? Is there another metric there? Yeah, so basically we just give them that advantage point, right? So we can um, improve their winningness by, you know, between one and 10%. So if they go in, you know, not, you know, not being aware of an injury or not being aware of, you know, you know, through a player versus player uh, display, which player is going to outplay and why, uh, we can give them that additional insight through events that have happened, through you know real-time AI predictions. We can give them additional insight into that game to help them make better bets and do better on those bets. Great. We'll, we'll wrap this up with the, the final question here. So, um, which aspect of diversity do you feel is most responsible for increasing company performance? And Dean, you'll you'll start that question. Uh, Kelly, I think you'll agree with me here. It's it's bringing in. Uh, people from all across the spectrum. So what we're looking to do here is, um, which we've done, I should say, is one, we bring in people from multiple countries to give us multiple outlooks on multiple betting markets because not all betting markets are the same. And you can learn a lot from different countries. It's a reason, it's the only reason we went to the UK, quite honestly. And number two, if you have women on your team and men on your team, those are two totally different psychological brains you have there, right? It's, there's a reason why uh, betting platforms, 90% of their audience are males right now. And unfortunately, it's because 90% or 80% of senior executive teams are made up of males on betting platforms. It's, it's just a harsh reality. So um, I've heard rumblings of, of people trying to create women-specific betting platforms, which I think is super interesting. Um, but I think that's a huge key. It's something we're looking to do. Um, obviously, we're a little too small right now to make it happen, but it's definitely in our roadmap and in our plans. Kelly, in your point? Yeah, you know what? Uh, quarter Four is a female-founded company. Diversity um, is a mandate. It's a part of the core culture at Quarter Four, and we've acted on it immediately. Um, between our, t our core team and our advisory board, uh, we have, for example, age, the ages of 25 to 55. You know, we have experienced uh, professionals have, that have been in the trenches, but then we have the unfettered optimism of new graduates and people who have really new skill sets that are making that's making our product really, really great. Um, you know, from a second uh, perspective, we have you know five ethnicities 
um, on our core team and our advisory board. Uh, and that gives us insight into, you know, how users use the platform, making adjustments on the platform. Who are we talking to from a marketing perspective? In Toronto, there's a huge, you know, Asian community that follows the Raptors. How do we tap into that target market, um, you know, and do even some crossover marketing there? And, you know, thirdly, we really, we're part of, for example, Kelly Kane, um, the All in Diversity pro uh, project, which talks about inclusivity in the iGaming space. It's really important to be a part of those initiatives because number one, you meet fantastic, brilliant people. Um, and number two, you know, it keeps your finger on the pulse of what's going on in the industry because as Dean mentioned right now, it's predominantly, you know, run by uh, white males from a consumer and an organizational perspective. So for us to be disruptive means to be diverse so that we can build out a product that's appealing to everybody globally. Yeah, obviously diversity is huge, right? But I wanna zone in a little more on the company performance aspect because it's it's different for everyone else. Obviously there's the mutual benefit for everyone if you're, you have a more diverse uh, office then your performance will go up in the sense that your workspace will be happier and so on. But for someone like us who are trying to compete with the, the DraftKings and FanDuel's of America, coming in with that experience of people abroad is enormous. It's it's monumental for us. It's it's we can actually play with the with the big boys because we have that experience. So, for example, we brought in two guys from the UK who have 20 plus years of experience uh, with betting exchanges and those guys have actually given us the intuition and the secrets behind what makes an exchange work and there's a reason why there aren't exchanges in the US right now and it's because of all these fallacies people believe. So in addition to that diversity aspect, um, what I was honing in on before, the location diversity aspect, is it's just enormous for someone like us. Yeah, and I mean, it, I think we need to look outside of you know, also the experience in the industry is really important, but uh, a new look and a, a new viewpoint on the industry is just as experienced. I don't even have background in the betting space. I'm coming as a, as a new user um, and, a, and a new technical view so that we can disrupt the space. I do agree that experience is really important. We need to have those on our advisory board. But to me, again, diversity equals disruption. We're tapping into markets such as the female betting space. I talked to DraftKings the other day. They're really excited about, you know, how females are betting. And we have females using our platform right now. And they're like, this is the first platform that makes sense to me. So without engaging, you know, all of these other viewpoints and skill sets, we're not going to be able to tap into those markets that are going to be so valuable to this marketplace moving forward. This is great here. So um, this was a well thought out debate. We're actually going to finish this up with an overtime question. There will be no rebuttal back and forth. You'll just have uh, a closing statement to answer uninterrupted within 45 seconds. So um, Kelly, you'll you'll uh, be the first one to answer this question, but would your strategy change if you came into double the amount of capital that you're currently seeking? Yeah, oh, okay, dreams can come true. Um, no, you know what, uh, in all fairness, our strategy would change. Our roadmap and our vision probably won't. We have a very, you know, our vision for quarter four is engraved. 
but yeah, the str- the we would expedite. That would be par- part of the main strategy. Uh, the first thing I would do if we got that extra money is I would sit down our financial advisors and I would say, what does this mean for us? How can we use this money most effectively? Uh, we would come up with a new burn rates. We would come up with new cash flow projections, uh, and we would, you know, come up with new runway, uh, you know, models as well. And then we would sit back. And then a couple of areas for sure I know that I would invest the money in is that we would bring in additional skill sets and people onto our development team so that we could expedite feature sets that are core to our B2C and our B2B plans. And we would put those people into place so I'm not overstressing our current team members, but we could still expedite and get those features to the marketplace quicker. So that would be very beneficial to our business model. Uh, the second area that I would put that money into uh, would be marketing. I don't want to market like a lean startup anymore. I want to market like you know an established SME. So how could we use that marketing you know, in areas to do a deeper dive on things like streaming, ads um how could we do a deeper dive on crossover marketing to really facilitate um that market acquisition piece that we desperately need as well as you know marketing research on the customer retention side so yes it would change my strategy the strategy change would be to expedite we would do it responsibly and with the advice of our financial advisors and i would want to make sure that it wasn't going to affect our evaluation either in a negative manner so that we when we go for our next round of financing we aren't you know are in trouble so um that's the way that i would address it as as the Good owner for and dean your answer would be yeah well nick you only gave me 45 seconds here for a fully Sorry. loaded question but but i'll try to do the best i can here um first of all i have, I have an investment banking background so modeling is is the fun part of the job for me so we've got scenarios where we raise a million, two million, and five million, and how it affects our whole business from the top down, because it's going to affect your whole business from the top down. It affects everything from your projections. It affects uh, when your employees get wind of it, how much of a pay increase they want. It'll affect your marketing, yes, like Kelly said, but it'll also affect your product roadmap severely. What things do you want to push up if you have a certain amount of money, and then what would your financials look like in those scenarios? You know, for us, what states do we want to enter first? If we raise five million versus ten million, are we going into New Jersey or are we going into Iowa and Colorado? So there are just so many variables here that affect, again, the whole financial health of your business from the top down. Um, Forty-five seconds there. I did my best to give you the answer, but um, seriously, it, depending on how much capital you have, it will affect every facet of your business. Well, that was a great debate between both of you. Uh, that wraps up the sports betting and gambling section for the Elite Eight. And now we're going to go for the judges' reviews and picks. We have an already debate for a budget campaign and use the hashtag debate for COVID. So now on to the judges. Now let's introduce our judges. First up, Brian Zwerner, founder at Beyond the Game Network. Next, Pear Highstead, partner at Rally Cry Ventures. And lastly, Chad Stender, managing director at 76 Capital. Let's kick it over to our head referee, Nick. 
right, that wraps up an amazing debate for the Elite Eight, for the sports betting and gambling section. And now we are on to the judges for their analysis and picks. So to kick things off, we're going to have Brian. Could you please provide your feedback and your pick for this round? All right, Nick, this is round two. So I am already expecting more. Both of these founders have got one victory under their belts. We start off with two questions, and man, Kelly comes out like a finance school professor. I was bored. This was nothing to do with her business or herself. She's giving me a lecture. Dean was hitting it hard. I liked it. He was coming out of the gate strong. We got into the third question around gambling data, and can you get an edge? And Kelly, man, she knew her stuff. She came out and finally woke up, and she got into the fight at that point. And man, she opened the door for Dean to crush her. Look, I'm a Wharton guy. I have a classical finance education. There ain't no such thing as no edge for betters. And if there was, it sure as heck ain't gonna be on no free website. All right, that's nonsense. But Dean didn't hammer at all. He let her get away with it. So she took that question. We moved into the final question on diversity in tech. And man, Kelly was prepared. She crushed it. Dean said some stuff that had my head spinning. I think you're going to hear about that from some of the other judges. So I'm just going straight up, Kelly. Kelly was my winner today. Great job. Way to bring your personal experiences in. Watch out for that professor stuff if you go on to round three, man. Nobody wants to hear you give a lecture. We want to know about your company and what you're doing to impact sports tech. And that's your best way to win. Brian, thank you for another enthusiastic response there. And now we're going to be on to Pear for your analysis and picks. This right now, we have Kelly for one vote. So Pear, it is your time for your analysis and pick. So forgive me for not having Brian's kind of uh, polished enthusiasm. Uh, so I'll start with Kelly. Um, a comment for both founders is when I work with founders, especially successful entrepreneurs, they speak with specificity. If you notice their language, if you stop and analyze, and all you do when you listen to them is listen to how specific they are, they are extremely specific. And the more successful they are, they tend to be more specific. Even in telling stories, they have high specificity. So for both founders, I'd suggest that you pay attention to that. Uh, Kelly, you used a few uh, qualifiers. There's some ums, there's some ahs. There's a few uh, ways that you're you're taking away a bit from what you're saying, uh, which I'd encourage you to, to uh, consider. Your thoughts on competitive research resonated with me. Um, that understanding if you have competition, uh, who they are, but also if you don't have competition, who the alternatives are. Um, I do have a question on the psychology of why gamblers gamble. I looked at your website and I would ask the question, if they won every single time, would people still gamble? Like making smarter bets is a pitch, but I'm curious on the psychology of why people care and why they would continue to gamble. You, My sister is a diversity and inclusion expert. Uh, I put her in the top 10 probably in the United States. You brought up diversity about disruption in a way that I've never heard before. So that single-handedly um, set apart what you were saying. Um, Dean, you talked about niche. My single favorite topic for startups is be smaller, not bigger. You have to own a niche, you have to master it. Um, so I agree with your point about the niche. I don't understand the company name. I went and looked at your website. I don't understand uh, profit. And then you brought up something about female betters. My weekend hobby is running a chainsaw. I used to do work for Husqvarna, of the chainsaw company. And it's 90% men, both professionally and recreationally. 
and it's 90 percent, 80% men run the companies. Does that mean that if we went to 50% female executives that 50% of the uh, recreational users on the weekend would be female? Because that actually is what I derived from part of what you said about uh, female leadership and female betting. And that seems like correlation, not causation. So that I have a little question mark about. I did like your answer on one, two or five million in the uh, capital raise. Uh, I was, in general, I was impressed uh, with both of you. I have to give uh, the edge to Kelly though. Well, thank you for that pick. So Kelly, that is two out of three votes. Congratulations on winning that round, but we still have one more judge for some great insight. So Chad, we're gonna pass it over to you for your insight on the sports betting space um, and your pick. Thank you. I appreciate it. Nick and Tyler, thank you for having me on the show. Enjoy the debate. Kelly and Dean did a great job, but to me, it was an all-in-all favorite. Our job as a venture capitalist, we have to figure out when the shot clock's down to five seconds, who do we give the ball to? I look at every conversation like that. I think of, is this person I want to give the last second shot to? It was very apparent to me from the start of this debate, who to give the rock. And when you're in any type of marketing competition, your job is to promote your company. Like any politician, you get three questions, you get four questions, you hit your talking points, you're not always so concerned. And while they both knew their industries, they both knew their companies, Kelly knew it cold. She was the doctor. You weren't gonna confuse her about her company, about her business, about the market. She understood it, she nailed it, and that provided me with the comfort of I'm drawing up that play, I'm giving her the ball. Dean, I also was surprised. I didn't hear you name your company one time and I might've missed it, but it was your job to tell us who your company is for us to walk away, no matter what the questions were, excited about you, the opportunity. And I think that's a lesson through anything you do. It's about building your brand. And Kelly, you crushed it. But overall, um, while I'm the third judge, I too agreed that Kelly was a winner and I appreciate you having me on the contest here. Thank you for that pick. And I love the analogies. We have chainsaws to final shots. They're great analogies here with some real uh, life applications too. So congratulations, Kelly. You just got a ticket to the final four and you'll be seeing who you will be slated against upcoming for the next round. So. Thank you for that amazing analysis and picks from the judges, Brian, Chad, and Pear. Let's go to the next round. Wow, those are some great debates. Thank you founders and judges for that effort. Hopefully everyone tuning in had some fun and learned a little bit as well. Remember to tune in tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern time for the second part of our Elite Eight debates. And also remember our Pledge It campaign. We're trying to raise $10,000 for the CDP COVID-19 Relief Fund going to frontline healthcare workers. The website for that is pledgeit.org forward slash startup debate. You can find our campaign page. If you can share that with your network or donate, Thank you in advance for that support. Use the hashtag debate for COVID. Have a great evening. Hopefully we'll see you back tomorrow night. Thanks.